Welcome to Mindharma, real conversations about what really matters. Our next guest on the Mindharma podcast is Marion Spencer, Head of People and Culture at the Black Dog Institute, a globally renowned medical organization that researches every aspect of mental health. The Black Dog Institute translates that research into practical solutions for individuals, schools, organizations, and governments. Marion has worked for 20 years in general and human resource management in the not-for-profit sector in both London and Sydney. She believes in prioritizing the human element of HR. With Marion heading people and culture, the Black Dog Institute has won Employee of Choice Awards for the past three years. It also won the 2019 Alan Fells Mental Health Award, which noted that more than 50% of the Black Dog Institute's 200 employees had disclosed a lived experience of mental illness. I'm delighted that Marion is here with us today to share her valuable insights in placing the well-being of human beings at the heart of HR. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their ancestors, elders and Aboriginal leaders, past, present and emerging. Hi, Marion. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Dean. Thanks for having me. Marion, before we talk about the amazing number of staff who disclosed a lived experience of mental illness at uh, Black Dog, can you tell me a little bit more about what the Institute does? Yep. So our core function is research. We're a translational research institute. So we investigate mental health across the lifespan with the aim of using the outcomes of our research to create mentally healthier lives, really, a mentally healthy world. Um, it's a big goal, but we translate findings into educational programs, digital tools, apps, clinical services. One in five people in Australia will experience symptoms of mental illness in any one year, and that's five million people. Roughly 60% of those people won't seek help. So we're really interested in getting to those people, providing early intervention and help seeking where it's needed. When you talk about translational research, does that does that mean putting scientific findings into everyday language that ordinary people can understand? Is that part of it? Correct. Absolutely. It's actually taking the stuff that our very big brained researchers find and using it to have impact where it's most needed. Got it. In terms of uh, creating better health in the workplace, how is Black Dog doing that? Um, well, through research and education, really. So through research, we uh, we have a whole workplace mental health research team and they're looking to identify what the risk factors are in the workplace, but also what the protective factors are in the workplace. So we take that sort of information that they find and we, we create um we have an audit tool, we have training programs in mental health literacy, we have a whole load of corporate education programs that we then deliver into workplaces um, to encourage workplaces to act and promote mental health through all of those protective factors and, and, and minimising risk. So how did um, Black Dog discover that more than 50% of staff had lived experience of mental illness and, and what have you done about that? Well, we asked them. Um, we just, uh, in our, one of our regular surveys, uh, we basically gave them the opportunity to disclose if they have a lived experience. Anonym it was an anonymous disclosure. Uh, we just said, do you identify as someone with a lived experience of mental illness? And it came back with, I think it was 51% of people just ticked the box, yes. And what do we do about that? Well, we do a, we do a lot. We promote disclosure and help-seeking. Uh, we encourage uh, education and mental health literacy to um, 
keep levels of stigma as low as we possibly can. I mean, I would hope that anybody answering that question in our survey would find it just as comfortable answering, have you ever had the flu? I'm not saying that we've reached that level yet, but that's what we would be aiming for. So, but I mean, unlike having the flu, you know, treating mental illness is, is not nearly as straightforward, you know, whereas staying in bed at home is the best treatment for the flu. That's probably not the best treatment uh, for somebody who is struggling with mental illness. And sometimes it's best for somebody who's becoming unwell to maintain some connection with work. So the complexities and individual variations of mental illness are vast. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach. So we have a mental health and wellbeing policy which outlines procedures for managers. It lists... We have a lot of resources, basically, for staff and for managers to manage the impact of becoming uh, mentally unwell at, at work. And we follow the guidance of our own research. You know, we look for those um, minimising risk factors and we look at what we can do to maximise the protective factors. Um, yeah. I, I was. I just found that uh, astonishing, that that high level of that that high number of staff who had disclosed lived experience of a mental illness and I, I understand that is staff who who may actually have mental illness themselves or a family member a loved one who might have a mental illness right yes so it could be that they're a carer it could be that they've been bereaved by suicide it could be that they have had a mental illness themselves um, it's somewhere in the very close proximity of their own life they have a lived experience yeah what has what that meant for the culture at black dog do you think the fact that you've got that out there that that so many staff have, uh, in an anonymous, an anonymous survey, disclosed lived experience of a mental illness? Um, well, I think that we have a very open uh, culture of, of disclosure and um, high levels of mental health literacy, uh, which enables us to feel, I mean, I hope anyway, that it enables everybody to feel that if they are struggling with a, a, a the onset of early mental illness or even just experiencing very high levels of stress or approaching burnout that they're able to put their hand up. Uh, so I hope that it's a, it affects our culture in a way that our culture has a safety net around it so that people are able to um, disclose and seek help early. So in order, in by enabling people to seek help early, we hope to reduce the the uh, incidence of people having to take lots of time off work because they're unwell. Some organisations will say that, that trying to implement a mental health program is just too complex. They'll say we don't have the staff, we don't have the money or the time to do it. What's your response to that, Marion? I'll say I just think that's rubbish. Um, I would say that if your organisation already has a strong positive workplace culture and high levels of engagement, you're probably doing a lot of what the framework we've developed um, encourages you to do anyway. Having a framework is really just doing it a bit more strategically and systematically and making sure that you are reaching as many of those people who don't seek help as you possibly can. I mean, any workplace can roll out a bunch of yoga classes or wellbeing programs, but you might find that the people who buy into those aren't the people that actually really need them the most. Um, and if you don't have a positive workplace culture with high levels of engagement, then I think that it's very likely that the economic costs that you're experiencing due to lost productivity from mental illness in your business is probably far, far higher than the minimal cost of implementing a, pro a program that uh, 
puts that safety net around mental health and well-being. It, it's not really that complex and it doesn't really need to be costly. To I mean, basically what we're talking about is treating people with respect, making them feel valued, giving them clarity, a sense of purpose. You know, I'm not talking about implementing really expensive gym memberships and yoga retreats and, and that kind of thing. I'm just talking about eliminating things in the workplace that can lead to that sort of toxic environment, to stress and to burnout and promoting things like organisational justice, good job design, transparency, work-life balance, connectivity, also all, all of the positive things, um, not necessarily complex or expensive. I mean, and clearly uh, COVID-19 has been, uh, uh, has had a major impact on workplaces in Australia and elsewhere. How would, um, how did you, how did Black Dog change its approach to its people when once COVID-19 hit? Well, we saw it as a pretty major change management piece, really. Research informs us that there are three things that can predict the onset of mental illness, particularly in crisis situations. They are not getting adequate information, not feeling like there is adequate protection and being asked to do things that perhaps supervisors are not being asked to do, so a lack of equity, I suppose. So with those things in mind, we embarked on a sort of a program of um, four things, authentic leadership, uh, where we encourage all of our managers and our leaders to share their own experiences, to be vulnerable where they needed to be, particularly back at the beginning in the early days in New South Wales. It was rapid change, very quick, uh, everybody having to be at home, you know, every, mm. the, the um, anxiety that people were feeling was quite rational. Uh, so actually uh, enabling our, our leaders to share that they also felt vulnerable, you know, it's okay not to be okay sort of thing. The second one is uh, a framework of really clear, consistent communication. We established two or three regular channels and we tried to be as honest, transparent as we possibly could. We did what we could to minimise uncertainty and give people information about the things that we knew that they would be finding very stressful, like job security. Um, and then safety. We gave people what they needed to feel safe. So whether that that for people when they started coming back into the building, we've provided a lot of PPE, we've set up protocols, we've um, given people the flexibility to stay at home if they don't feel safe enough to come into work. Um, and then there's the well-being piece, the fourth uh, prong of this approach was really just encouraging well-being. People keeping people connected with each other, giving them the opportunity to have time to stay fit. Um, so we've implemented a bunch of things like lunchtime fitness sessions, um, lots of funny channels on teams where you can play silly games and guessing competitions. Having fun, I think, uh, was one of the main part components of that of that pillar was was yes encouraging people yes it's a really stressful situation but you know we can still connect via teams and and try and relax mm. okay now that's great thank you um look i'm not talking about black dog here but why does hr generally get a bad rap from employees and what can be done to change that i think hr can be seen as real sticklers for the rules they make the rules they try and make everybody adhere to the rules um, they can be seen as being very uh, steeped in policy and bureaucracy, creating roadblocks and, and, and making things difficult. I think HR is also, you know, 
we undertake some of those more unpleasant tasks in the workplace, like um, performance reviews, um, performance management programs, terminations, managing interpersonal disagreements. Um, but I think that what can be done is I think the sector probably needs to more closely align with the human side of what they do rather than the resources side. I mean, at the end of the day, everybody in your organisation is a human. Uh, so I think connecting more with that sort of kind collaborative side uh, to humans. I mean, obviously equity and compliance are really important, but I think um, being and being uh, more flexible, having more discretion and being able to bend the rules sometimes and, and that be okay, so long as obviously it doesn't compromise equity um, and fairness. Um, I think, yes, I, I think basically looking at people as being humans rather than resources. Um, you know, stationary and computers, they're resources, but people are the thing that make your culture. Uh, and which is, I think the, the people in your organisation are greater than the sum of the parts uh, type of thing. So, yeah, I, I think that there is a growing sense that the HR department is more commonly be coming known as the people and culture team. Mm. Uh, so I, I think there is change there already. Okay. Some years ago, you suffered a severe workplace mental health injury. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. Um, look, I always thought I was pretty resilient, bulletproof, really. and I, I never really considered that I might become one of the one in five um, who experienced mental illness, but I did. Um, I came off on the wrong side of a what I perceived as being a pretty poorly implemented workplace change program. And I use the word perceived because whenever anything happens, everybody has their own perception of it. And it may be quite seriously misaligned to someone else's perception of it. So my perception at this time was that I was pretty much blindsided by my colleagues, by people who I'd seen I thought it was probably my friends as well as colleagues, but um, my perception of it was that I've been excluded from a bunch of discussions and I ended up feeling incredibly undervalued and diminished. Um, but then what was happened, what happened then, um, I actually started thinking that I probably wasn't really very good anyway and that all that time that I thought I'd been doing really good work and contributing value I actually hadn't and everyone else was better than me and that's why I'd come off uh, in this um, what I perceived as being a much poorer situation. It basically undermined all the confidence I'd ever had in myself but it also filled me with outrage and bitterness <laughs> mm. uh, uh, and it made my mind ruminate endlessly. It kept me awake at night. It got so that I couldn't focus on my work. I was unhappy most of the time. I was crying at the slightest thing. And I just couldn't think of anything else and except how unfair and awful and shit it all was. And then one day I had a panic attack at work, which was really frightening. I had some visual disturbances. I couldn't see my computer screen. I started to hyperventilate and I just had to go home. And I ended up having nearly two months off work and, and being quite unwell for some time. How long did this all go on for? The evolving of the actual workplace change uh, was yeah. probably uh, maybe a couple of months. Mm. Before I actually crashed and realised that I was actually ill. Yeah. And, and how did you end up dealing with this? How did you sort of bounce back, if you like, get back on your feet? Look, I would have loved to have just walked away at the time. But my mental state left me really in such a bad and weakened place that I, I couldn't, I just couldn't find, I couldn't even face finding another job. So 
I um, I went on to antidepressants. Um, I started to practice mindfulness, started to practice regular exercise. I got a mental health care plan and I found myself a really good CBT therapist. I had nearly two months off work and I was on antidepressants for nearly two years. Um, and, and, you know, those things all, they worked for me. Um, uh, and then I decided one day that I would look upon what had happened to me as professional development, really. There's nothing better than a lived experience to enable you to understand and promote psychological safety and positive mental health in the workplace and understanding, you know, how it can go so badly wrong. Um, so I came to understand a lot more about how people compete with each other at work and in subversive ways how some people want power for themselves over others or just generally how damaging and toxic the workplace can be when these things start to happen. And, you know, we, we spend so much time at work um, and we get a lot of us sense of self-value and worth from work. So it, it um, I think I did everything I could to make myself better and then I stepped away from it and I looked at it for what it was and moved on. Mm-hmm. So with all that knowledge then and experience, what can leaders and managers within within an organisation do to better support HR teams in creating mentally healthy workplaces, do you think? I think they need to realise that HR is not just an operational function. I think we need to enable our HR teams to be involved strategically, not just operationally. So HR is just so much more than just recruiting people. So I think that what organisations can do is they need to have that HR, the senior people person, um, the person who's basically um, responsible for the most valuable and expensive asset in the company, they need to bring them into the the leadership team at the executive level. They need to be reporting to the CEO. The the company culture is driven by the CEO. So it's really critical for your head people person to work really closely with the CEO so that culture is being flow is flowing down from the top rather than being pushed uphill from somewhere down below. So I, I think that's that's one of the major things that organizations can do better to support HR is traditionally HR reports into finance because it's just seen as a resource. It's so much more than a resource. It needs to be managed strategically at the strategic level of the organization. Do you have any advice for people starting their career in the people and culture field? Well, I think there's a huge range of diversity that they're going to come across when they're dealing with people. So we're also very different. Um, So I would um, advise them to get to understand diversity because no matter what what you do, there'll be someone who doesn't like it. So get used to criticism as well because you can't please all of the people all of the time. But embrace that diversity as well because – the diversity of human nature when you bring people together from diverse backgrounds um, enables so many more ideas to, to come to the table and that, that can drive innovation and, and really affect your culture in a positive way. Uh, I think one of the things that most people have in common is to be treated fairly, so keep equity at the top of the list of everything that you do. Um, organisational justice and fairness um, are just incredibly important be authentic and be kind. Um, you're going to need to have difficult conversations and, and there'll be times when you have to performance manage people or terminate people's employment, but you can still do those things kindly. And when you treat people kindly, 
I tend to find that those difficult processes are much easier and um, people are able to reach a place of insight and acceptance far more easily if they're dealt with kindly. Learn about managing change because there's a lot of people who really hate change and, you know, I think they say the only constant thing is change. So know how to bring people along on a journey, listen to them and use communication. And probably the last bit of advice I would give them is to look after themselves because you're kind of there once you reach the top of your career, you're there to look after the welfare and the well-being of everyone else in the organisation. So you need to be pretty strong and resilient yourself to be able to do that. That's great advice, Mary. If I can just ask you one last question, um, given your experience and you're talking about life journeys there, do you have any words of wisdom that you would share with your youngest self? I find this the most difficult question. I really do. Um, I think uh, I think mindfulness is something that I've really embraced over the last few years. And I think I would encourage my younger self to be more mindful, particularly when making choices and choosing paths. Um, my younger self never really followed a plan. I just sort of it felt like life just unfolded as, as, as it went by. And I, I didn't ever really plan to work in HR. Um, it just happened really. Um, my goals were much, much more unrealistic. You know, I wanted to save the world and the environment and end poverty and famine. But then I think I came, became a little bit unstuck because those goals were far too big for me really. And I hadn't achieved any of them by the time I was older. (laughs) So I think that was partly why I fell so hard when I had that sort of humiliating setback in the workplace. But, um, but look, I don't have any real regrets about the way things turn out for me, but I think if I'd, if I'd been more mindful about decision-making, um, you know, I may have meandered differently through now life, but uh, I feel like I've done some good work and worked for some good organisations, so I don't have too many regrets. Well, that's great, Marion. Thank you very much. It sounds like you're making a real difference at Black Dog. So uh, thank you for your time and for being vulnerable as well. I, I really appreciate that. Thanks, Dean. Nice to talk to you. The Mindama podcast shares stories of personal resilience and mental health. If you are impacted by any of the stories shared in the podcast, please consider reaching out for support. In Australia, you may choose to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you are living outside of Australia, please visit befrienders.org for support services in your country. Thank you for joining us on the Mindama podcast. We invite you to discover even more with the Mindama e-learning program. Mindama is an award-winning program being used by thousands of workers as they take on some of the world's most challenging roles. Learn more about your brain, unwind with relaxing guided mindfulness exercises, and discover simple, practical skills you can use whenever the going gets tough. Find out more at mindama.com. Purchase online, or better still, ask your boss about bringing Mindama into your workplace.